Marin. Screen Heat Miami. Yes, sir. Back with the one and only Kevin Sharpley. And J.L. Martinez. That's right. Today we're going into the lion's den. That was pretty good. Get it? <laughs> I see we're continuing with the puns. We are. From the interview, you'll you'll understand why that all makes sense. Dean Lyon is our special guest interview today. A An amazingly talented visual effects supervisor and producer who's worked on everything. The man, the myth, the legend. Yeah. Legendary. Legendary. He blew up the White House. Yes. Independence Day. Right. Clarify. (laughs) Please. Don't call Homeland Security. (laughs) No need to call Homeland Security. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Yes. He worked on Independence Day, Armageddon. And drew into the meteor. Drew. Drilled into the meteor. That's right. Literally drilled into the meteor. It's a very touching scene. Killed Bruce Willis. Poor guy. He did it for his daughter and I guess what would have been his future son-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice wedding gift. Sometimes you got to go. You got to do what you got to do. Yes. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Speaking of blowing things up. Yes. There is a lot of things blowing up in the industry. Yes. The Streaming Wars saga continues. It's getting intense out there, my friends. These are corporate juggernauts going toe-to-toe now. The Battle of the Giants. That's right. Clash of the Titans. Mm, it's getting heavy. And we'll see where it all goes, but the the most recent is that uh, Apple Plus finally uh, officially launched, uh, announced their launch and their price point. Big blow. Big blow. Low blow. Low blow to... to to everyone. Everyone. I mean, from Netflix <laughs> to Hulu to Amazon, obviously Disney Plus that even hasn't hasn't even ramped up yet. And now you have Apple Plus coming in at $4.99 a month. Just $4.99. Undercutting everyone. Just like, you know, fire sale from the get-go. <laughs> Free for everyone that buys the new iPhone. Wow. For a year. What a way to sell iPhones, huh? Shh. I guess those three camera lenses wasn't enough. I, that's another. I wanted to talk about that, too. What do you need three cameras on an iPhone for? It's lenses. Right. And AI. Sure. The first phone to use AI. There you go. Triangulate the actual image. The look and the feel. Everybody's a cinematographer. Well, you know, with AI, <laughs> I don't know. Things are changing. That a lot of phone is a beast. It is. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting uh, that they just keep pumping out new technology, and and people like it. Yeah, but if you're in the industry, I mean, that seems like the phone to have. It is. 4K, 60 frames per second, and the three lenses with the AI. There you go. It's pretty tight work, and you get the 4.99 for a year. Apple Plus. That was pretty good. I think that's a great sales pitch for Apple. If you're listening, we are still looking for sponsors. I think Kevin did a great job of giving you a couple freebies there. Maybe they'll put me on the board. (laughs) There you go. And speaking of which, this show is brought to you by... Chemical. Kajik Multimedia. Cinevision. And the Miami Media and Film Market. Yes. Yes. Shout out to Patty Arias. I haven't talked about her in a while. She's out there doing her thing. Boom. At the market. Yes. So yes, we are. We are got a lot of topics to. You know, this this whole thing with with Disney CEO leaving the board of Apple. That's what I said. There's an open seat. That's what I'm saying. So what are you thinking about applying? Huh. How do you do that? How do you apply to be on a board? 
<laughs> How does that even work? Well, you know that I was the chair of the Miami-Dade County Film and Entertainment Advisory Board. Wow. You've got credentials. Huh? Huh? Someone's going to you need a headhunter or something. No, send it in. Send that resume over. <laughs> give you a shot. Just give me a free iPhone. There you go. I recently heard, I read the uh, the... Endeavor agency used to be known as William Morris Endeavor just brought on their first female board member. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's the the founder CEO of Etsy or something like that. Mm. But uh, interesting that it's actually and the reason they're doing it, obviously, everyone's trying to be more diverse nowadays and especially in corporate America 2019. It's about time. Yeah. Apparently, there's a law in California, though. If you're a publicly traded company, you have to have X number of female board members. Right. Which is so it's it's become like state mandated now. California leading the charge. Always doing something out there. There yes. you go. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but back to Apple. Back to Apple. And the streaming wars. And the streaming wars. What do you think? You think that four ninety nine is gonna knock people on the head? I don't know. And I wanna I don't obviously, yeah, it's an attractive price point. You know, it's it's less than half of Netflix. It's still coming in under Disney Plus. But, you know, and I, I think to me it's all about content. You know, the we talk so much about yep. content is king, and content is the one that really drives all of this. So, you know, what what are their shows? What what's going to attract folks to that platform? And maybe that's part of the reason why Apple's coming in a little soft in terms of their their launches because maybe they don't feel that they have the library yet to really compete. Well, it's a build, though. You know, right? I don't think out of the gate you can knock them out of the box, right? But I did see a teaser. From one of their shows. Oh. Jason Momoa. Really? The show looks good. Okay. I love it. So I think at least one show looks sure. like it's gonna be something. Yeah. <laughs> you never know until you actually watch the show. But so that's one. Hmm. And you know, they've talked to everyone in Hollywood, and I know that they have, you know, a good mix of people that right. are producing content for them. I think Spielberg's so, jumping on something, right? Yeah. That's right. It's going to be interesting. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see. They definitely have a lot of money in the bank, though. Well, yeah, it's it's what? It's like one of the the most capitalized companies in the world. Like, they have... Highest valuated, but Microsoft kind of notched them out right. um, earlier in the year. So yeah. when do you think Microsoft is going <laughs> to... <laughs> Microsoft streaming. Gates Plus. I don't know. Um, Come up with something. Uh, give, give them a call. Any company worth more than a billion dollars has to now... <laughs> By, by sheer it's fact, mandated. Mandated, you have your own streaming platform. I mean, you know, Walmart's even played with their own streaming platform. Right? Yeah, yeah, they, they try did. to go after the Amazon market. So yeah, it seems like every major company. You know, I, I have a theory that I do think that in the future, in the now, uh, every major company has to act as their own media company. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there was a big shakeup over at uh, AT and T because one of their and I'm not going to name any names, but one of their big investors um, had issue. And this report came out uh, two days ago, had issue with the acquisition that AT&T did with uh, Time Warner and DirecTV. And so this investor and you all can Google it. Uh, their big issue was that those acquisitions were not necessary for a telecommunications company. Hmm. The CEO of AT&T struck back and he said content is king hmm. he's an evangelical believer that content is king sure 
But what do you think? I agree. I mean, I think that's the reason why, for example, Disney is pumping so much money and so much effort into this streaming platform. I mean, this is their that this is the most important, and their CEO said the most important product they've ever launched. And it's all about filling it up now with content and IP. And of course, yeah, I mean, that's really the main driver of eyeballs of attention. I mean, the fact that Amazon again is doing it to sell to free two-day delivery and they're spending a gazillion dollars on Emmy award-winning shows yeah. just really goes to show you how important that is. Yeah, I guess um, according to this other report about the BBC, they didn't feel that content was king from the 1950s to the mid-70s because the report says that they erased most of their shows from that time period. Wow. And by look, looking back on it from from 2019, how important we see content and and having a library of everything. But you have to understand, I think the time period of the 50s and 60s, content was seen as, you know, this is something you put up there and, and it filled a time slot. It did its job and you move on to the next thing. There wasn't really this idea that this show or this content or whatever they had stored in those vaults would really have that much value 50 years, let alone 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah, and IP wasn't what it is now. No. Intellectual property now is everything. Yeah. And all the companies are mining all their libraries to come out with the remake of this or the reimagining of that. And, you know, I think a lot of people, it, it's, it's, I, I, I think that it's, more of a challenge if you're not in the industry to understand right. why you have you know all these remakes and all of these uh, you know reimagining of this and that and it really is because the companies already own this intellectual property right. so they don't have to spend money extra money to create something new and it's a property that people already know or at least they have some familiarity with it so the risk isn't as much as launching a brand new entity and a brand new property. Right. So when you hear something like the BBC, it's not just the actual programming that they don't have, that they lost. A lot of that intellectual property is gone. Right. Now, there is one intellectual property that they were able to gather different episodes and components, mm. which is one of my favorite, Doctor Who. Ooh, that's a good one. And the reason why they were able to gather the Doctor Who material is because it was spread out throughout, throughout properties around the world. Right. The international marketplace has become so important. Hmm. And, you know, back in the 1950s, even up into the 70s, for the U.S., it was an important market, you know, because a lot of our material was exported out to other places. So when a lot of companies went back to try to find a lot of the material that they couldn't find, Previously, they were able to go and find, you know, a tape in another market that someone had or, you know, some film in a market that someone else had. The BBC didn't have that luxury. But with Doctor Who, which was a big export for them, when they went to go look for that material, they were able to find it across different territories. Right. But just imagine. Yeah. Even all of that history. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's like yeah, losing all of the works of Shakespeare because someone decided, <laughs> oh, we, we did we did that play already. What do you need that for? Just toss it out with the rubbish. <laughs> I'm sure someone better will come along. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know the thing is, you know the technology back in those days was such that they used these 
huge beta tapes. Right. And those beta tapes took up so much space. Right. That they didn't necessarily throw them out, but someone just said, hey, this is a this is a mighty fine tape. Right. Why throw this out? Let's just re-record over it. <laughs> there you go. Cost, <laughs> cost cutting. <laughs> Budget conscious. And now you have all these companies fighting, fighting for their old content. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at the Seinfeld. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was another story I wanted to bring up today. And they're, they're reporting that now the entire NBC library of all, every Seinfeld episode has been bought up by Netflix. <laughs> So, yeah, that is happening. Makes sense because, you know, I, I do believe that that at least Jerry Seinfeld and, and his good partner, um, Larry David, own part of that IP. So because Jerry himself has made such a big push into Netflix, it would make sense that he would also want his legendary iconic sitcom to be part of the search bar of Netflix as well. Yes. And also Netflix, they lost some friends. They lost some friends. That's right. They lost some friends, but they gained some a show about nothing. <laughs> so I guess there's that. They lost friends. They got nothing. <laughs> they got nothing in return, which is a big nothing. Yeah, it's a big nothing. It's a very popular nothing. Yeah. Well, so Seinfeld, what, what streaming service were they on before? I believe they're on Hulu now. They're on Hulu now. Yeah, so this deal will actually take effect in 2021. Mm-hmm. So I think you got about another year. Uh, but then after that, you'll only be able to watch the the Seinfeld library eh, on Netflix. Wow, so they just keep jumping. They do, and, and like I said, everyone's fighting for those IPs, those eyeballs, those subscription dollars, and that's really, really all it is. And and it's definitely, it's definitely a tussle. But I think that eventually things are going to shake out. Things are going to calm down. I think the new sort of media spectrum will come into shape and we'll start to be able to think long it feels like right now everybody's just running around prospecting throwing money left and right trying to figure out what works and what doesn't you know which the entertainment industry is known for but uh it's definitely one of those things where you know the added ideas of technology and social media and the immediacy of everything has caused things to really accelerate quickly yeah yeah it's yeah. going fast. It's going. And speaking about going fast, another little tidbit of the news that we just heard the announcement of a new series of cast members for SNL, and it seems like just as quickly one of them's gone. Whoa! <laughs> that was fast. That was fast. Yeah. yeah. I think I read some grand opening, grand closing for unfortunately for this young gentleman uh, who was announced recently, Shane Gillis, as one of three new featured cast members on SNL. Uh, almost, it felt like almost immediately afterwards, uh, some older podcast and videos that he had done, uh, which included some ethnic and racial slurs, popped up. And over the weekend, it just kind of festered there for a while until the point where finally SNL made the call and decided to remove him from the cast. It's tough. It's a tough racket. It's tough out there in them streets. Yeah, especially for comedy, you know, or, you know, what we consider comedy and sort of what are the boundaries now? Are we living in a new normal? Is it the comedian's job to still push those boundaries? Is so how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, another thing that's tough is, you know, SNL, they announced their first Asian cast member. Right. So as Times are changing. Right. Times are changing. Andrew Yang. 
He's a funny guy too. Yeah, he's a, he played uh, Kim Jong Un, I think, right on the last yeah. season. He he did make a couple of guest appearances. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think this was supposed to be this big PR moment for us. And now, look, we've got our first featured Asian cast member. Along and boom, with, boom you're talking about the first featured Asian cast member <laughs> by another cast member. Yes. Yeah, so that unfortunate timing, I think, for Shane. <laughs> but hopefully, yeah, you know, he'll he'll be able to figure things out. But it uh, looks like that's 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 done. Yeah. So past. Yeah. Looking into the past. Looking into. You got to be careful. Oh, you definitely do. I mean, I, I agree a thousand percent. I mean, now nowadays you just you have no idea what to do, what to make of a lot of stuff. But, um, yeah, this is the world we live in, so welcome to it. But I think in terms of creating worlds, I'd love to see if we can transition over to our good friend. Yes, a creator of worlds. Creator of worlds. Visual effects supervisor for Lord of the Rings. That's right. He talks a little bit about one of his favorite scenes in that. We'll tease that and just let you listen. And and the worlds that he created. So, yeah, you got to hear this. All right. Dean Lyon, and we'll be back. So well, let's excited. jump into it. Let's jump. We are here with the very talented visual effects designer, creator, composer, just like a, a magician of the visual arts industry, a storyteller, a filmmaker, the one and only Dean Lyon. Welcome to the show, Dean. Dean Lyon. Hey there. Thanks. We're having cafecito. Yes. Every I said every podcast interview comes with free cafecito. Cafecito that's, and chat. That's part of the deal. <laughs> so let's so, jump right in. Yeah. Yeah. So Dean, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your what's your background? Where are you from originally? Really? From the very beginning. We're going to start We're going to start Where way were you back. born? What was I born? I was Where born were you born? How were you born? How were you conceived? <laughs> well, you mentioned the womb, so let's go no. further back. Yeah. <clears throat> Where do you hail from? I'm from Detroit, Michigan. As I always said, Detroit's a great place to be from. The interesting thing about uh, Detroit was uh, I grew up with Motown. Ah. Oh, wow. So uh, that was a really interesting era to be in Detroit. Uh, definitely... Uh, uh, the escape was worth it. I ran away to California to surf and write poetry mm. <clears throat> and uh, ended up in film school. Wow. So you didn't know that you were going to go into the film industry? No. Um, yeah, I ended up in uh, Santa Barbara in an A-frame house with seven other surfers. Wow. And uh, thought, this is, uh, this is my life. Just a free spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on it, I always say, uh, you know, I went to California to surf and write poetry. What does a kid from Michigan know about surfing? I must have been <laughs> one right. hell of a poet. Right. That makes you good for show business because everyone fakes it till they make it. So uh, yeah. <laughs> you just pick it up. But, so. you know, there is something. Some of the biggest surfers actually come from here in Florida. And Florida doesn't have, you know, the same kind of waves that California has. Unless there's a hurricane about to come. And then if you saw South Beach was lined up two oh, days ago. Out there. When I, when I got here, uh, when I got here to uh, South Florida, everybody was talking about surfing. And I said, that's ridiculous because I've surfed all over the world hmm. and being a Southern California surfer for many, many years. And uh, they sent me to Juneau Beach one weekend and I said, okay, now I get it. Mm, you got to make what, make whatever you have man, work. There's, there's some good waves in Florida, yeah. Yeah. as you mentioned. You got to know when to catch them. How, yeah. Certainly, <laughs> certainly last week, you could even go to South Beach. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I saw some video of that just lined up with surfers from like 
Fifth Street all the way up Collins <laughs> Avenue, whatever, Washington. It was just like just surfer, 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 surfer. It's like I think they're probably on the on the same WhatsApp and they just group text each other. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of waves, you've made a lot of waves in the industry. Yeah, how how did you go from free spirited surfer <laughs> to to getting involved in, in such a state of the art part of the industry? Well, like I said, you know my my interest in writing poetry was uh, I was going to be a creative writing professor and uh, in, and surround myself with young people and young ideas, and I would never grow old. <laughs> So the whole writing side of things is what really drove me. And so I got into journalism. I was going to say I, I wrote for the Isla Vista Press, which in, in Santa Barbara in its day was the Berkeley Barb or the Ann Arbor Sun. It was the underground radical newspaper. And then based on that, I decided when I went to university that I would study journalism. Hmm. And it was really interesting. In, in journalism, the, uh, the main thing that... Uh, most journalists talk about in college is they want to write film reviews or they want to write theater reviews. He entered from stage left representing the French Revolution. So, you know, those kind of sort of arty, uh, in-depth kind of conversations. So I thought, well, if I'm going to write for movies, then, you know, I'll write about movies, then maybe I should learn how to write for movies, so then I'll know what to critique when I review them. Mm. So that's when I got interested in screenwriting. Mm. I was in screenwriting, and I went, how in the heck am I supposed to know how they're able to shoot this if I can't actually figure it all out? So that's what got me more involved in uh, the visual side. Uh, I've been doing photography since I was eight years old. I was processing my own film in motion pictures when I was eight in the dark room in my basement. Uh, so I'd always had this uh, connection to film and filmmaking, but it didn't really hit me until I was writing for it that I actually really wanted to understand all the bits and pieces. So by then, uh, video was coming along, and the interesting thing about video was that it wasn't nearly as complicated as film. Uh, film editing was actually quite a craft, not necessarily an art, because you had to splice just exactly right. And if you didn't get it right, it bumped when it went through the projector. Mm. So the first time I ever saw electronic editing, I went, oh, hold on a second. I can do you know frame-accurate edits. I can repeat frame-accurate edits. I don't lose a frame on either side. Mm every time I change the cut and oh by the way things like opticals suddenly we can do uh, inexpensively and in real time wow. and so that's what really drove me into being interested in post-production and really in the post-production world in the edit suite uh, is where visual effects grew that's where it came from mm. the current state of visual effects Wow. So um, a lot of people think about special effects in, in movies or television. And when I first came to Florida, everybody said, oh, you're a special effects guy. Why, you blow cars up. <laughs> <laughs> so special effects to me are exactly that. The guys that blow things up, that create the fog, create the smoke, uh, handle all the weapons, uh, you know, all these different practical effects. Mm. So what I always try to explain is we take those practical effects, we put them in the computer, we make them four times bigger, we stick the actors into the shot, 
because it was far too dangerous to have them near the explosion, and that's what's called a visual effect. So in the post-production room, we suddenly started problem-solving things that were done on set, you know, the old famous fix-it-in-post. In In the process of fixing things, we suddenly realized that with computers and computer graphics and with the equipment that we had in the room, that we could begin to change the way things were perceived and change the way things were delivered. Wow. Well, one thing that I know, and we've talked about this because we've been friends for a while, is you've worked on some pretty significant projects. So I just want to talk a little bit about some of the projects that you worked on. In particular, I want to start with Michael Jackson. <laughs> because you've worked on a couple of Michael Jackson videos, right? Yeah, I was I was lucky enough to be in Hollywood in the golden age of music videos and we, we quickly discovered that computers and computer graphics was really going to change the filmmaking industry dramatically. And I was one of the early people who said, uh, you know, one day we're not going to need actors. Mm-hmm. We're going to do it all in the computer. Mm-hmm. And the first time Max Headroom came out, they all thought I was a friggin' genius. <laughs> Then I had to quickly explain that we had spent a whole bunch of time putting makeup on a person to make him look like he was in a computer, and wow. it wasn't really a computer effect. Well, wait a minute. I always say I learn something new every time I talk to you. So you worked on Max Headroom? And that was a practical effect as well. It wasn't a digital... Yeah, we, I mean, we did treatment afterwards, obviously, right. to make it look more computery, but it was a guy in makeup that we <laughs> wow. shot. And then we fooled around with frame rate and, and glitches and things like that to make it look computery. Huh. So, you know, back to uh, back to Michael Jackson, the uh, the idea in the in the music video thriller was that they were going to have all of these practical effects of the zombies coming out of the graves. And uh, I've lost it. Who was the effects guy, the effects makeup guy? A very famous guy. Um, he's the one that particularly asked that I should be on set. Wow. Because what he was concerned is as they came up out of the ground, the makeup would get affected and that we might have to do touch-ups, like all of a sudden if it was pulled off the skin. And then secondly, he thought in case it didn't look cool enough, we could actually adjust how they emerged out of the ground. Mm. And so that was the main reason why I was on set, was to look at how those zombies appeared. Uh, In those days, you know, we probably would have done most of those treatments as traditional film effects as opposed to computer-driven, because it was still very early on in the era. Right. But that was the cool thing about music videos, is we quickly learned that computers just weren't big enough or fast enough to do film effects. Mm. Uh, people like George Lucas were messing around with doing stuff for features, but uh, most computers weren't fast enough. Right. So where, where the industry really grew was in video, mm. television commercials, music videos. So in the early days of music videos, it was really interesting because they said, well, if it takes $6 million to do a 60-second Chrysler ad, then a five-minute music video should cost... So suddenly we had very high-end directors like Tony Scott, and we had you know very high-end effects expectations, 
not to mention the shine and polish of a car ad right. for the music videos. Right, because those essentially were ads for the artists. I mean, yeah. those, and, but they were treated as events. Like I think Thriller even had an, its own premiere, and MTV really treated that like this huge, huge event. Yeah, so uh, MTV is, is obviously very much a critical part of that era because suddenly you didn't have to worry about distribution because there was distribution. Hmm. So the record company saw it as a way of promoting the artist. Right. So they would put money into the videos. Then suddenly, the uh, the agency, you know, the agents or the the management of the band would say, "Hey, this is going to be really good for the band. Let's throw money into it." Mm-hmm. They might even get a sponsor like Pepsi, who's doing the 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 uh, concert tour, to put money into the music video. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, the artists themselves, if they were well off enough they would also put money in to get the things they wanted done Hmm. so back in the day there was like three or four different revenue or budget generating pipelines right the only challenge was mtv was showing it for free right right so what what were they really getting in return other than just free publicity Right. So then the challenge was making sure you could stay in front of the noise, which doesn't sound unlike YouTube these days. Right. (laughs) And make sure your video gets the right airplay at the right time in the right block sequence of videos. Mm. Then I still remember one year um, at a bar mitzvah, uh, bar mitzvah, at a a Hanukkah party in in Hollywood, uh, the the head of production at Capitol Records said to me, he said, we're not going to do it anymore. I said, what well, What aren't we doing anymore? Right. We're not going to do music videos anymore. Uh, uh, why, uh, you know, why is that? Well, I'm certainly not going to spend that kind of money, you know, millions of dollars, just to have Beavis and Butthead show two or three seconds and make fun of it. Right. And that was the end of the music videos. Wow. But you did do another Michael Jackson video, though, right? Yeah. And Janet Jackson and Madonna and in in the era. One of the most expensive videos ever made, few people know this, was a ZZ Top video. Which one? The one where they're on the treadmill. Uh-huh. Mm. Okay. Uh, and you worked on that one? I was there. Yeah, we had set extensions and there was a lot of post effects. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. we're gonna have to post some of these videos to the website. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to link. They're all on YouTube now, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, yeah, we'll find them. Remember we'll that? Put them on the website. But that, remember that was my my uh, report at the Miami Film Market. Right. Miami Medium Film Market. That's yeah, right. Miami yeah. Media Film Market. My report was that as I searched for some of these videos that I worked on, is that really good copies of them no longer exist. We'll yeah. put up. The best quality copy so, we can right, find. Right. Yeah, so I think it would be really interesting for someone to take this on as a project and say to all the record companies, why on earth don't we have 4K versions of every one of these right. videos? Someone needs to be the Martin Scorsese of music videos. Most we're, of them, <laughs> most we're putting of, the word out now. Most of them were shot on film. Right. Mm-hmm. Probably very few of them were posted in film. They were probably posted in standard definition television. Right. But if we could ever 
get back to you know masters mm. i think it would be worth preserving that part of our history because it's sure. going to go away i mean the capitol record building is now a condos yeah i mean the industry has changed so radically we're going to lose sight of the history of what yeah. happened and i was actually only half joking but i think there is something there in terms of going back and preserving because i said so much time energy money resources you know uh, like you said some of the top directors in hollywood all working on these music videos during this time where it was you know know just kind of like this emerging art form almost and so i think it is worth to go back to those days and see how how we can maybe preserve some of it bring it back and and it was also you know we talked to youtube a lot in sort of how you know music videos mtv wasn't showing music videos it was all reality tv it felt like the music video genre was dying until youtube came along and all of a sudden it was like wow a new pipeline um, and it was sad to see that MTV wasn't at the forefront they just kind of let it go and then you know companies like Vivo took it on and now it's a big thing again yeah but I wanted to explore exactly what visual effects is <laughs> but I think that this is a good entryway because here's another little known Dean Lyon fact okay he actually worked on the you can't touch this MC Hammer music video <laughs> that was my favorite i must have wore that audio cassette for kids that don't know what audio cassettes were before <laughs> streaming you actually had to rewind and replay on a physical tape to hear your favorite song over again anyway sidebar <laughs> yeah so i mean isn't that a good entryway though who would who would have known i mean wow. it seemed like such a simple music video you know but can you talk a little bit about how you got pulled into that <laughs> Well, what's what's interesting about um, what's interesting about that particular music video is because for me the image that pops into my head is immediately multiple layers. Right, he's in the foreground dancing. There's girls in the background dancing, and they're over a plain white background, kind of floating in space. So, you know, for me, it immediately says, "Oh, it's a multiple layer video with lots of keying." Um, the, uh, in the early days of, of uh, computer graphics, uh, I helped invent one of the premier computer graphics machines. And we were really well known for being able to handle uh, that sort of chroma keying, let's call it, where mm. you put people over a green or a blue background and you can cut them out quite easily electronically, replace that background with something else. Um, and then secondly, if that didn't work, then what you would end up doing is rotoscoping. So we actually invented rotoscoping tools that exist today still uh, on this computer graphics machine I helped put together. And rotoscoping is going frame by frame by frame, each frame at a time, mm-hmm. taking elements out, cutting around them. Right. So MC Hammer's music. <laughs> so they... they uh, they, you know, decided early days that they would shoot that as chroma key. Uh, there's a whole bunch of interesting tricks to getting that right. Um, uh, it wasn't an exact science in those days. Not a lot of DOPs had done it. Not a lot of lighting directors had done it. It's one of the reasons why I always insist I should be on set whenever we do those kind of shoots. Um, And so they actually had problems with the way it was shot, and they needed Mm. to clean it up. Mm. So they put that to work in London, and the biggest and best people in London were working on it, and MTV kept rejecting it because they said it didn't look good. 
So ultimately it was handed to me as in Hollywood and on the machine that I helped invent, we actually finished that video. Wow. What were the problems? Oh, it's just, you know, like it's going back to that basic science of chroma keying, mm. um, you know, things like hair, um, right. Lighting. Shadows? Spill. Huh? Right. 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 Wow. Yeah. So then the industry evolved and you evolved with the industry or it sounds like you helped to drive a lot of the revolutionary things that happened in the industry. So from music videos to <laughs> commercials to features. Is yeah, that so, how it happened? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, I, I say it in my biography uh, that in a way, I was a visionary about where I thought things were going. Go back to, we won't need actors ever again. Um, and and also the fact that uh, there's a certain amount of art that was going into the visual effects in those days. We were all very dedicated artists that were fairly clever technology people because we could kick a computer and make it work. Mm. Um but we always wanted to see it driven to the next level. We wanted to, I think we brought, we talked about this earlier today. We wanted to show the audience something they had never seen and also let the audience experience something they would never experience unless they did it in, in our way and through the computer. So I used to always say that I'm going to, I'm going to change the world with computer graphics. I'm going to change the world in a good way mm. with computer graphics. And so that was always my, my vision. My dream was to let's do the next big thing. Let's do the next big thing. Um, so you find, uh, you find directors who suddenly can say, look, I can think of anything and Dean can make it happen for me. Right. Right. So, it's easy now. <laughs> so as you can imagine, I suddenly became a very interesting secret weapon for a lot of really top or up-and-coming directors, right? Mm. I mean, a lot of people don't know that Michael Bay and Dominic Sienna and uh, David Fincher all came from the same exact music video company in Los Angeles mm. uh, doing you know early-day music videos. Um, wow. So it was kind of a really interesting time in Hollywood when those guys would move on to do a commercial. You know, Tony Scott did lots of commercials. Suddenly, when he needed something projected on the side of a building in downtown L.A., I was the one they called. Um, and eventually, all those guys ended up being filmmakers and getting their shot at feature films. Yeah, yeah. Tying it to Miami, Michael Bay got a shot with Bad Boys. Yeah, I think that was his so, first. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how many visuals, but I'm sure there was a lot of visual effects. Uh, in, in more bad more of the what you're saying, blowing cars up, blowing stuff. <laughs> well, up. Miami sees so, the effects. So everybody, everybody always says, "Oh, remember when Bad Boys? Remember that really big explosion?" Right, right. That was me. Oh, there you go. Michael Bay's second movie, The Rock. Remember at the end of the movie, all of Alcatraz explodes into a big explosion? That was me. Wow. Armageddon, destruction of the space station mirror, it all explodes into a big... That was me. So you literally are a secret (laughs) weapon. You are. Yeah. (laughs) By the the time he did Pearl Harbor, he was apparently uh, running up and down the hallways at ILM going, where's Dean, where's Dean, where's Dean? And they all had to explain that I'd been in New Zealand for... For a while, so oh, New wow. Zealand. Before we get to New Zealand, <laughs> that's incredible. I just want to talk about interplanetary. One of my favorite favorite scenes in movies. Mm. I think this was the first movie that blew up the White House, and then the White House <laughs> got blown up. 
many, many times afterwards. Right. It became almost a trope after <laughs> Independence Day. Mm-hmm. You worked on that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the thing we have to remember is we start talking about those kind of projects. There were a lot of people that worked on Independence Day, right? right. And, um, you know, I, I happened to be chosen to work on several shots that became quite, you know, Iconic. Seminal to, to Independence Day, one of which is blowing up the White House. Um, so, you know, that, that was really in the early days of computers. We were using computers that were as big as refrigerators mm. that, you know, use more electricity than all the ele- electronics in our house. Um, and it took dozens of them, not just one or two. And it also took us, you know, a year or more to, to do the visual effects on that film. Wow. Well, That's like animated films. They take two years, yeah. three years to make. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. just the VFX. Um, but we did start moving towards New Zealand. <laughs> what was that like? From L.A. surfing to New Zealand. Three That's of my favorite films in film history. Lord of the Rings. Is that why you went to New Zealand? Not at all. Mm. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> you were in New Zealand before that. Uh, no, not exactly. So um, the interesting thing about uh, let's go back to Independence Day just for a second and let's talk about all of these movies that depicted aliens and all of these movies that depicted space mm-hmm. and space wars. Um, you know, Mars Attack. <laughs> I remember that one. That was a film that I worked on. <laughs> wow. uh, uh, Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, there were some Star Trek and Star Wars movies along the way. Uh, so when when the time came to do Matrix, they were very carefully um, interviewing just about every visual effects and computer graphics artist around <clears throat> to try to put together the next team that was going to create something that nobody had ever seen before. And interesting enough, I turned down Matrix. And my reasoning was I could never live in Australia. Which is actually quite humorous because uh, three or four of my best friends are Australians and they're all great guys. But there was something about, you know, I just could never live in Australia. And in fact, a really good friend of mine who I just visited this year uh, down, down in Sydney, I've known him probably for four decades. He was the main uh, visual effects uh, producer on um, Matrix. <clears throat> so you turned down the Matrix. So I turned down Matrix. Uh, there's a few others that I've turned down along the way. Not necessarily for for the the good, but um, uh, anyways, uh, yeah. And I guess I, I guess I should preface that with one really interesting thing about working in the feature film world uh, and being someone who's needed on set as well as in post production is that you really could travel anywhere you wanted to you really could live anywhere you wanted to because it's happening all over the world right so you know i spent time in africa i spent time in london i spent time in germany working on projects so it was kind of unusual that i said oh i can't really do australia Mm. not sure exactly why i did that um i turned down uh I turned down working at Industrial Light and Magic a number of times because I didn't think I could live in San Francisco. Uh, Part of the reasoning back then was I thought if I was out of the circle in Hollywood, they'd forget me. Mm. 
you'd be locked away somewhere. So maybe Matrix had something to do with that. Mm. But I always tell the story about the problem with living in Los Angeles is that you have to escape. Eventually, you have to escape. Did you ever see the movie Escape from L.A.? Oh, yeah. Of course. That's what it's like. Escape I did from New York. That, but that's what it's like. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, um, at the end of every at the end of every film project, I'd have a few weeks or a few months off until the next one came up. And so I would just travel the world just to see places and surf and, uh, you know, find myself. Um, and so the challenge always was with my travel agent was, okay, where am I going that I've never been before? And it became harder and harder to do. Um, but I was definitely open to it, the adventure. So I guess uh, I ended up I ended up uh, going up to Seattle to work on a film called Cats and Dogs. Don't know if you'd call that one. Uh, it was in Vancouver, Seattle, and Portland. Mm. And some of it went back to L.A. Uh, it was as we were wrapping up that movie, I said, I'm going to do myself a favor. I'm going to go to New Zealand on holiday. Hmm. So off I went at Christmas to New Zealand. I flew back to Los Angeles. I hadn't been in my place for four or five months in L.A. Wow. I had to quickly search and find my passport. <laughs> it was Christmas Eve. So where are you going to go to eat? I went to Cantor's. Oh, I remember Cantor's. I used to live in L.A. I love Cantor's. <laughs> Grab, grabbed a few pastrami sandwiches to take on my flight the next morning on Christmas Day to New Zealand. Wow. So the interesting thing about traveling to New Zealand is that you get there two days later. So I didn't arrive until the 27th. So I had some old friends who were artists, computer graphics artists in L.A. They were running the machine that I had invented down in New Zealand. And I called them up and I said, I'm coming to visit. And they said, oh, you always say that and you never show up. How many times have you told us you're doing it? No, no, I'm serious. I'm going to be there on the 27th of December. And they said, well, we're leaving on the 30th for Rio de Janeiro. They're going to celebrate New Year's on the beach in Rio. But here's the keys to our car. Here's the keys to our house. Here's the keys to our studio. <laughs> Make yourself at home. Have a good time. I said, I'm only going to be there for, for uh, you know, 12 days, I think it was. They said, oh, we're not coming back until the 30th of January. But, you know, you know, enjoy yourself. We'll see you for a couple of nights before we leave. Uh, when it was time for them to arrive back in New Zealand, I thought, oh, I better get off my butt and figure out what I'm going to do. Uh, at that point, I said, there's no way in hell I could work in the film industry in New Zealand. So maybe I'll just like buy a water taxi service because there was one for sale that I could afford. It probably wouldn't have been a bad idea. You know, drive a boat, talk to people all day. All right. Come to think of it, I can do that in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> you can. The, you do the Uber. visual effects on the water taxi. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but uh, uh, and the America's Cup was coming up, too, so it probably wouldn't have been a bad business decision. But I said, no, there's no way I can and, and, uh, tell people what I do. I do visual effects in Hollywood. Oh, you should meet Peter Jackson. I said, Peter Jackson? Why on earth would you want me to meet Peter Jackson? He makes slasher movies. Mm. You know, things like Bad Taste and Brain Dead, right? Uh, probably the only really mainstream thing Peter had done was The Frighteners, right? And there was some interesting computer graphics in it, but I didn't ever think of it as a, as a uh, you know, the type of movie that I would work on. And they said, oh, no, no, uh, you got to call him up. Uh, his company's called Three Foot Six. Three Foot Six Productions. The height of an average hobbit. 
Mm. And I went, oh, wait a second. Lord of the Rings. Interesting. So just on a whim, I called I called up Three Foot Six Productions and said, Peter Jackson, please. Oh, you just cold call him. <laughs> <laughs> I guess at the time. But I mean, he wasn't Peter Jackson. Right, right. Then. And, and he then, was Hollywood Dean Lyon. So and that's he, right. <laughs> and he answered the phone and he said, hi, this is Peter. And I went, holy shit, this isn't Hollywood. I've got the director on the line. So I immediately launched into this really contrived uh monologue about I'm in New Zealand and I really like it here but I'm not here to save your movie (laughs) and he was really cruel and he let me just go on and on and on on. eventually he he interrupted me and he said well where are you and I said I'm in Auckland he goes why aren't you in Wellington whereupon a little voice came on the phone and said Peter says you're on the next flight to Wellington When you get here, there'll be people at the airport to pick you up. And when you get over to the studio, you have to meet Peter's producer, Barry Osborne. Mm. So the flight from Auckland to Wellington is about uh, here to Atlanta, something like that. Uh, L.A. to San Francisco, that kind of a trip. And as I was traveling there, Barry Osborne was the person I turned down for Matrix. Same producer. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, so he knew who you were. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I had this image as I was on the airplane that I'm, he's going to get one look at my mug and I'm going to be back on the airplane again. Mm. So it was really kind of just a day's trip, you know, kind of an adventure, I guess. Um, so I, I get to the studio. Barry gets one look at me. He puts his arm around me, gives me a huge bear hug, uh. and uh, began to tour me around Wedded Digital. Wow. And interesting enough, there were a whole bunch of people there that I knew hmm. uh, from Hollywood. And I said, I remember going to your going away party. I remember going to that party. I remember you were leaving to work on Lord of the I never realized it was in New Zealand. Right. Right. And so, uh, uh, interesting enough, that's how I ended up getting involved with, uh, with the project. Was there already a buzz about Lord of the Rings at that point? They had just wrapped the principal photography. Okay. Um, on on one of the last few weeks of the shoot, the visual effects supervisor got fired. Hmm. Uh, he was an old friend of mine and um, probably one of the nicest guys in Hollywood. And uh, the whole movie was kind of in a in a. Uh, uh, turmoil, a standstill, right? They were heading into post and they didn't know what the visual effects were looking like. Um, yeah, it was kind of an interesting lull before the storm. Right. And more unique in terms of principle, I remember them saying that they did shoot all three films, correct? Without yeah, back to back. Back to back to back. Yeah. So this was the first film. This was the this first, was supposed of the the first film? Yeah, so the challenge was that <clears throat> New Line was the I'm sorry, back to New Line New Line was the studio that did uh, Lord of the Rings. And the largest project that New Line had done prior to Lord of the Rings was Austin Powers. Hmm. So from a thirty five million dollar movie to a three hundred million dollar movie. Right. Three movies. <laughs> the three movies. From, from what I understood, wow. if Lord of the Rings had failed, it would have bankrupted New Line. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's more to that. But uh, it was definitely a big movie for a small company. Right. Right. Um, $300 so, million dollars back then. I mean, I mean, you're talking about the late 90s. 
right? More or less. So you can imagine they hired some consultants um, uh, that you know came from the visual effects world, uh, and the advice that everyone was giving them was: you need to shoot all movie, all three movies at the same time, because it's going to take us a year to finish each movie in post. Mm. So that drew. Oh, or maybe that was part of the driver of the decision to shoot them all at the same time. So what would so what would happen to your Hobbit? Right. Two years from now, when you shoot the next movie, two years from now, when you shoot the next movie, these people are all going to get older. They're going to age. They're going to change. What if they're not available in their shooting schedule? Right. To to do it. Um, <clears throat> also, the technology is going to change on each movie, and it did. Right. Right. But. Just to be just to be super careful, let's shoot everything together at the same time. That way, we're able to, um, you know, keep it consistent. The continuity between the films. That's that's actually was really smart. Now, the interesting thing that the, one of the secrets of New Zealand was that they never would have made Lord of the Rings if it hadn't have been for Xena and Hercules. Mm. Xena and Hercules was how all of the crew cut their teeth in New Zealand. Wow. Is they had worked on really intense television series, which has a much rougher shooting schedule. You squeeze a lot more in. You cut corners where you can. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of uh, tricks that you learn shooting television. So they actually shot that movie in a record period of time. Shot three films together. Wow. In a record period of time for a feature film. That's crazy. And that was the wrap of principle. What eventually happened was each one of the films had 16 weeks of pickups, full cast and crew. Wow. So each year they came back and shot more on a schedule of a almost a regular feature, a feature film. film. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Right. Wow. At the time, New Line was being acquired by Time Warner. Mm. Yeah. By Warner Brothers That's something. Studios. Especially and it in really these days was of acquisitions. It really was the acquisition by Warner Brothers that made the movie possible. Sure. Yeah, that makes financially they needed that backing of of yep. the parent involved. Yeah. And, and as you can imagine, New Line had a great calling card when it came to sitting at the negotiation table. Sure. Yeah. They've got this film that's going to be the epic movie of all time. Right. Well, right. for me, you know, as an audience goer, because that movie happened before I was even in the industry, but just to be in the audience, you know, that was really a seminal moment. It really married so many elements. First of all, the... Uh, um, Cafecito break. Yes. <laughs> Roberto's bringing in the cafecito. This is a very important um, moment. He's giving us little that cups. Yes. Sorry. No, oh, no, yeah, no, the no, little no. cups. That's right. Pass. Oh, I see. Perfect. There we go. The thimble cups. <laughs> I got my. Oh, you got. Yeah, he's. <clears throat> okay. Perfect. Gracias, Robert. No, no, no. Gracias. Thank you. Cheers. Ah. <sighs> To our listeners, that's the sound of caffeine. You're <laughs> enjoying this cafecito break with us. Getting 
getting pumped through the veins. I'm sure if they would have had this on the set, they would have made it even faster shoot. <laughs> That's right. As I put my cafecito on top of right, my Starbucks right, right, coffee. Right. This for a three foot six Hobbit, I'm sure it goes a long way. Oh man, yeah, they're, they're running all the way across Hobbiton to the other realms. It's really, fu- it's really funny. I was showing, uh, I was just the other day. I was showing Margaret um, a commercial for, for Da Vinci. Ah. Yeah, I'll have to show this to the, you guys. It's classic. Yeah, we're going to get into the Da Vinci. It's classic. But oh, wow. in the Da Vinci Labs, there's a Starbucks cup. Oh! <laughs> and I went, I beat Game of Thrones! You did! <laughs> That's where they got the idea! That's exactly what it is. It was an homage to Dean's commercial. <laughs> there you go. That wouldn't have happened on your set. Um, yeah, so... So just in the audience. Yeah, and, the yeah, but, you know, before I was even really in the industry... Just to be in the audience, I mean, it married so many things, you know, incredible story. Right. The acting was just, you know, extraordinary. But really, you know, the visual effects were seamless. Right. Uh, Epic scale. Yeah. Just epic. You didn't feel any effect. Right. And it stands the test of time. No, you're right. That's and that is a phenomenal feat. It, it does. It feels almost seamless because it's so ingrained in that it doesn't feel like, oh, here's this big visual effect shot. It just all felt like it was so naturally and obviously credit to Dean and his team to create that seamless transition where you're seeing this epicness, but it all feels like it makes sense. It's yeah. it's it's organic. It melts yeah, together. So don't forget that film is a collaborative effort. Yeah, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. That. You know, yeah, for, yeah. Thousands for people, of people who don't know. Yeah. If you look at the, on the credits, the please look on the credits and you yeah. see, uh, it's, you it's know, the visual effects people. team is yeah. probably as big as, you know, the other parts of the, of, of, yeah. of the, the movie. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't just me. There was a bunch of very, very clever people. Uh, but we did, you know, we did have a chance to, you know, put my personal mark on some of the scenes in Lord of the Rings. And probably the one I'm most proud of is Rivendale. Mm. Uh, we created Rivendale. Um, uh, with uh, Alan Lee, who was the guy that illustrated the the Tolkien books. Uh, Alan was the only person who could approve a shot without Peter seeing it. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. That is something. And he basically came and lived with us in our facility. And we worked on, uh, as someone pointed out, all the big cities in Middle Earth. Wow. I didn't realize... North had any big cities, but <laughs> but Rivendell was really the one I thought uh, really it was the safe place to be in Middle Earth, right? It was right. the haven, yeah. and uh, we had a chance to make it very beautiful <sighs> day and night. Um, and it was always in the movie, it was the place where you could kind of let down and not worry about a sword coming at you, right? <clears throat> so I was always really proud of the work on that. Uh, there were plenty of times in dailies when they would uh, they would be looking at a shot and Peter would yell out in the theater, "That's a Dean shot!" And suddenly really? I'd, suddenly, <laughs> I'd run back to the studio with show my artists, you know, this is what Peter thinks we we need to do. <clears throat> I tried to explain to him that this never happens in Hollywood. You never get to create something from scratch. Uh, that usually there's this really strong pre-visualization, direction, uh, concept art that you had to match and copy. Mm. Uh, There was a lot of times in Lord of the Rings where Peter took advantage of the fact that he had great artists working for him and he let people kind of go off and come up with something. Wow. And so the interesting thing about that was uh, that, that practice. Yeah. I'm sure that you guys were moving so fast that you had to 
have that type of communication in yeah. order to pull things off. Right. Yeah, we we always talk about um we always talk about in feature films, there is no such thing as a final. Mm. The final is the delivery date. Right. Or <laughs> the premiere date. <laughs> <laughs> and interesting enough, it used to be that you'd have to have the movie completely finished three months before it went to the theaters. Right. Because we had to make the film prints, right? And on a wide release, you had 2,500 theaters minimum. Mm. That's 2,500 five to seven real movies of Physical film, prints, yeah. Of film. So right. just to get the film printed Jesus. was going to take three months. So the movie would always be completely wrapped. We'd all be on holiday, and we were still three months away from the screening, mm-hmm. from the first premiere. Hollywood figured out, the labs figured out that if they could shorten that period, they could charge more money. Hmm. <laughs> and we needed that time to finish the visual effects, mm-hmm. right? Right. These days, you can actually be screening the movie in a wide release. In fact, there's been several times in my career where I've changed shots while it's in wide release. While it's in, wow. Because you're sending out electronic copies, which can arrive there overnight. Right. If not faster, you can send them a new print. Wow. Right? And you don't have to replace all seven reels. You can just replace the one reel or the one frame or the one scene in the movie. A tweak. Well, you know, this is a good segue into talking about the production pipeline. Because a conversation that we've had is that visual effects should be thought about in pre-production. It should start in pre-production and carry yeah. through all the way through post-production. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about the production pipeline and even the modern production pipeline? Because you look at films like, you know, Avengers, that's very visual effects heavy mm-hmm. in all the Marvel films. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that production pipeline? Yeah. So, um, you know, despite everything I just said, uh, I off, I often use Lord of the Rings as an example of a really well done pre-visualized movie. Uh, they were big believers in concept art and, and pre-visualization. Um, and they we, we learned a lot of things about uh, planning ahead on shots. Um, but... From the very beginning of the days of visual effects, I always insisted that the best projects I ever worked on, I was involved from concept to finish. Hmm. And some of the worst projects I've ever worked on were my wife's sister's brother shot this shit. Can you make it work? Can you fix it? Right. (laughs) A shot mechanic approach. Fix it in post. (laughs) And I used to charge accordingly. I got to the point in Hollywood where people realized that I was the fix-it guy. Mm. So if they suddenly saw my name in the credits, they went, oh, something went wrong. What must have happened on that production? (laughs) So there's quite a number of films where my names don't appear in the credits because they didn't want A, A, anyone to know that they had to fix something, and B who was the person in charge that I ended up fixing something, right? So it hurt their reputation as well if I suddenly appeared in the credits. Wow. Now, a lot of times I came in to save the day on something that, you know, wasn't a 
fault of anyone in production, but was something that we could do because the technology kept getting better and better and better. Wow. One of the things you learn when you are fixing shots, and I think I used this line with Kevin before, is how much do I have to charge you to convince you that it's cheaper to go back and shoot it the right way? That's a good point. And that was the beginning of the dialogue of, oh, maybe Dean should have been there when we shot it. Right. Right? Right. Then when you're there, when they shoot it, they go, oh, maybe Dean should have been there when we were doing the storyboards. Hmm. When you're there with doing the storyboards, they go, oh, maybe Dean should have been there when the writers were writing this. <laughs> Just give Dean the script. What do you think, Dean? Yeah? Because, no? because the interesting thing about being involved in the, in, the, in the creation stage is that I can tell you, hey, look, doing that dragon is going to be really, really hard. But if you want 15 flying ceratops, it's going to be the same amount of money. Hmm. Right. So there's there's creative decisions that I can help with as early as when something happened, when something happens in the script. Wow. Right. The other thing I talk about in, in script writing is sometimes you can have a single paragraph that is a multi-million dollar visual effects shot, right? Right. You know, we watch New York City as the sun rises and it gets exterminated by a huge atomic bomb. Right. Right? That's a very, very expensive shot, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Or you blow up the White House. I I call that the the whiskey shot because the writer was probably having a couple of shots of whiskey. He was like, yeah, we'll blow up New York. (laughs) There's been plenty of times where I've I've been going through the breakdown of a script and it's like, you know, Suddenly the guy is waist deep in water. How in the hell are we going to do that? (laughs) (laughs) What about the second take? Yeah, right. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh, that's great. You've said oftentimes that most projects, TV and film, have some form of visual effects. Mm. So there's two things that is, you know, we don't want to kill our listeners but i definitely want to dive into um you know some of the details of different segments of the industry so visual effects on potentially 90 95 percent of projects is that approximately right i've been i've been saying for years that there's uh visual effects in every project hmm but I cheat and I count opening and closing credits mm. and I also count any opticals like dissolves and wipes uh, and also now of course we color grade the movie from beginning to end in a mm. computer so all of those really are visual effects those are things that fall into my camp of things that I helped invent and things that I do um, and then, you know, how many times have we, on even the lowest budget project, had a simple fix, right? We forgot to get permission to use the Apple computer logo, so we need to remove the Apple computer logo. That's why these days you always see the thing taped over right. in every movie, right? Right. Oh, we left the Starbucks cup. So you're okay. the, uh, the E&O person. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so... I think, and, you know, maybe we'll put this on the website, too. What's interesting is to see, you know, sometimes they shoot a shot that's in the clear sun of the day. And then 
they add rain and then they add clouds. They add thunderstorms and lightning and all those types of things. Can you talk a little bit about that process and you know how at what point do you feel like god (laughs) just change the weather well he is you know ultimately you know and what's the thought process behind that Hmm. stumped yeah interesting um I was just trying to think I was trying to think of a specific example just recently where I said you should shoot that day for night um yeah, it may have been this theme park theme park project that I was on. Uh, you know, it it's supposed to be a nighttime shot, but it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to do the effects on it with a daytime shot where we can see the tracking marks and we can see where things fit, and then we just make it day for night. You know, later on. Uh, so you know, for for years, there's been some examples in Hollywood movies where we did day for night, even back in the days when we were doing uh, color timing on the actual film. Um, some of them work, and some of them don't. I think probably the same thing is true today. Uh, but in real in reality, with enough time and with enough money, you could probably do just about anything. So once again, how much do I have to charge you to convince you to go back and shoot it properly? Um, So, you know, we we talked about uh, Da Vinci. That was one of the things that when I came and worked for Da Vinci, that was one of the things that I quickly discovered that this this concept of changing the look of a shot is as simple as turning a dial and it all happens very very quickly uh i went to the i think it was edmonton film festival and one of the producers of um miami csi csi miami was there and she congratulated me and patted me on the back because i was with da vinci she said you made it possible for us to take that show back to los angeles oh because well on screen heat miami (laughs) because when a stab in the heart because when you shoot in miami everything has this orange tone to it so we could take it back to los angeles and just in da vinci we'd make it orange Mm. and nobody realized we weren't shooting it in miami anymore i see the same thing on what was the on dexter Mm. saw the same thing on dexter when they moved his apartment to long beach suddenly i saw wait that's long beach wow (laughs) but it's got the orange tone of miami all throughout the show um i did a project uh with my studio i did a project for boeing up in seattle and we delivered a film that was going to be shown on a kiosk at their museum up in Seattle. And the first thing that came back was, that looks all Miami. And it turns out we had taken their footage and color graded it to look the way we thought it should look based on looking out of our window in Miami. Ah, Everything is not orange in Seattle, Dean. Everything is blue and gray. So we had to go back and do a different color grade to make it look more like Seattle. So can you talk a little bit about Da Vinci and what Da Vinci is and what you did for Da Vinci? Yeah, well, um, you know, I had had sort of a long uh, sorted history with uh, Da Vinci. the computer graphics company where I helped invent the computer graphics machine actually purchased DaVinci. So I traveled to Fort Lauderdale years and years and years ago when we first acquired DaVinci. DaVinci was a very high-end computer graphics system, or is a very high-end computer graphics system that is used for finishing on 
every type of project you can imagine television film music videos um and uh at the time um well back in those days uh our our goal was to see if we couldn't take that system and move it into computer more of a computer graphics machine and less of a of a proprietary hardware box so years later when i had my company in new zealand we had a davinci and i saw where they were as far as the state of the art of things and ultimately they recruited me to help define the future of where they were going so uh, i ended up in fort lauderdale I commuted from Wellington, New Zealand to Fort Lauderdale for a year, which, as you can imagine, was a a number of trips around the world. Jeez. Um, How many frequent flyer miles (laughs) did you have? (laughs) And uh, uh, at the time, when they when they uh, built the the facility in Fort Lauderdale that I I came into at the time, they when when uh, 9-11 happened. 2001, right? When 9-11-2001, Da Vinci had 99.9% of the world's marketplace. Wow. When they built this building, which was a seven-bay industrial space in Coral Springs, Florida, they had this longest hallway I'd ever seen inside of a company because it covered all seven loading docks. Wow. And on both sides of the wall, they had movie posters the entire length of the hallway. When they bought those movie po- posters, they did no research because they assumed everything was being done on Da Vinci. And in fact, it was. Wow. <laughs> That's quite the assumption. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, now. And they had, they had Oscars and Emmys sitting in the entryway. Wow. Um, you know, they had pretty much led the way on finishing, uh, not the least of which was color finishing, doing mm-hmm. the final grade or look right. on the on the movies. Um, by the time I had joined the company, my news to them was that they had, they were a third of the marketplace, hmm. and that they had five competitors. And when I laid out who the five competitors were, all the salespeople said, we don't have any competitors. Within a year, we had 10 competitors. So a lot of people moved into that space. Exactly. Right. But there's so much content being produced now. I could imagine that, you know, Da Vinci still has quite a lot of work. Yeah. So Da Vinci came from this space of being the market leader, no other choice, very high-end, very expensive, very singularly qualified person driving the machine um, <clears throat> to suddenly the marketplace was opening up. People were color grading and things like Premiere, Final Cut Pro. Um, <clears throat> the, the industry was sort of shifting away from that one big high-end computer, what we used to call the hero suite. The hero suite was when you had a very high-paid talented person who was putting the final touches on your movie Uh, the industry was rapidly moving away from that so da vinci was trying to shift as a company from being this sort of rolls royce bentley kind of a company to at one point they even said fiat oh wow and i said you guys have to realize that not only that will change the end product of what we're delivering but it'll change the culture of this company Interesting. And the industry changed in that way, too, because yeah. it now, you know, it's more accessible. Yeah. 
So eventually, eventually we got to the point where we sold Da Vinci, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, to Black Magic Design. Ah. And the entire com- it's an Australian company. The entire uh, Florida facility was moved to Singapore. Wow, that's something. <clears throat> At the first NAB, I said, "How much does it cost?" And they said, "It's free." <laughs> so the industry did dynamically change. Wow. So I said, oh, you're going to make up for it in quantity, I guess. Right, right, right. Which is precisely, if you talk to them today, they'll tell you how many millions of seats of Da Vinci Resolve they have Hmm. out there. And that's what, yeah, because now, you know, this is the golden age of content. So all you have to do is buy a Blackmagic cinema camera and you get a copy of Da Vinci to go with it. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what a lot of people may not know is that you've worked on a lot of animation projects as well. Can you talk about some of the animation projects you <laughs> Well, um, being, being involved in the early stages of computer graphics, of course, uh, we were heavily involved in moving traditional animation from being hand-drawn and film-scanned to being done in the computers. So I actually had some experience with Disney and... Uh, um, Hanna-Barbera back in the day when they were both moving towards how do we do things in the computer. And um, the main thing that we were interested in replacing is what's called inking and painting. So once all the lines are drawn, now we need to color them in. It's a very painstaking artist kind of project. It's almost like color by number. Hmm. <laughs> to paint each one of the cells. And don't forget that we have multiple cells per second. Wow. <laughs> and they all had to match and they all had to look right. And if you needed to make a change, you had to throw them all out and print new cells and go back and repaint them all again. So to do that in the computer was definitely going to be a time-saving, uh, probably a more creative process because we could make last-minute decisions on color changes. Uh, so I, when I was building the computer graphics machine, um, we decided that we would try to build an electronic ink and paint system. So I found an old Disney animation director uh, to come on board and consult with us on how to do the inking and painting in the computer. And he said, inking and painting is what this machine should do. No man or machine can in between better than me. So of course my computer software guys went. We're gonna we're gonna show him. <laughs> this is a right. John Henry story. It's <laughs> <as> a challenge. <laughs> and sure enough, we we got the old time animator to eventually say, "I think we're in betweening as well as we're inking and painting." Wow! Did he drop his hammer right down in front of you after that and just kill? <laughs> so interesting enough, I was telling the story the other day. Interesting enough, um, we were selling the ink and paint machine into traditional animation studios in Hollywood. And my biggest competitor was Pixar. Wow. That was their early days was they build hardware hmm. and they were trying to get into electronic ink and paint long before we know Pixar is Pixar today. Right, right. So um, as you can imagine, it was an interesting battle back in those days. But it also meant that I knew the founders and I knew uh, how that company grew. Huh. Um then, then the next thing we, we started to do was we started to do cleanup of the old cartoons. So we would refilm transfer a Disney cartoon, and then we'd sit and clean up all of the uh, 
errors that you get when you do a film transfer, but also, surprisingly enough, all of the sloppiness that was in some of the very classic Disney cartoons, including, in some cases, margin cartoons. Mm, margin so the, cartoons. So the animators, like we used to get in Mad Magazine, right? They used to have the cartoons along the bottom of the page. Mm-hmm. The animators back in the old days would do, as a joke, they would do little animations outside of the normal frame. film projection frame. <laughs> that if you looked at it on a movieola, you could actually see them. But once you projected them in the theater, they were all masked off by the screen. So we found all kinds of interesting things that were going on in little quirks know, in Snow yeah. White and the and Seven Disney Dwarfs. Disney owns that too. <laughs> uh, they own the quirks that we had to paint out. And, <laughs> yeah. and, it, and over the years, of course, a lot of the frames had been destroyed. So we ended up replacing frames. Wow! Uh, as part of the transfer, so that was getting everything to. Uh, I believe HD. Hmm. So I'm supposed we're going to have to go through the same process again one day when 8K comes around. Right. Yeah, they're trying to push that now. Right. Um, so some of the specific animation projects that you've worked on, uh, I guess, in this modern era of animation, um, can you speak on some of those and quite possibly some of the things that maybe people might not know? that go on <laughs> uh okay well i was i was gonna say five goes west but that's not a that's not a modern day uh animation that was the first one that steven spielberg did um oh, that's great <laughs> yeah uh, uh i had a i had a really good friend who was a business partner he ended up being a producer on uh the fox primetime cartoons hmm um, we worked really hard to get The Simpsons over to computers. Hmm. Uh, I was involved in that. Um, and uh, uh, out of all the Fox primetime shows, they had Simpsons, they were launching Futurama, they had King of the Hill, and Family Guy. Wow. So out of all the shows, the show that needed the most uh, producing help was Family Guy. So he ended up over at Family Guy. So I had a chance to work uh, quite a lot in season one on Family Guy. And it was an interesting process. Uh, Seth was uh, a really talented character, but really, really new to the industry. Mm. Uh, And it was quite a creative, fun environment to work on a cartoon show. Of course, weekly deadlines are no fun for anyone. And the fact that we at that time we were still farming a lot of the animation work overseas. Wow. Because we still hadn't moved everything into computers. Um, but, um, you know, that was, a, that was a, I guess, the glory era of animation, too, was uh, what really brought um, primetime animation around was Ren and Stimpy. Hmm. Which, uh, you know, I've had the chance in the last couple of years to work very closely with John Crick Felucci. And in fact, you know, our studio here in Miami is a result of the work that we did right. uh, back then. Um, so today we're busy uh, building an animation studio here in Miami and we're trying to put together the aesthetics of 2D animation with all the tools and techniques of 3D animation Hmm. with a strong visual effects finish, obviously because of my background. So we're creating a unique look to do uh, animation in a more efficient and uh, better way. 
let's say. Right. So it's almost like you're bringing it back because a lot of people know that some of the traditional animation studios have been in Miami years ago. Um, that there were some of the, even going back to the black and white cartoon days, was the Fleischer Animation Studios that yeah, was here? Max Fleischer. Max so, Fleischer. Yeah, so we had our sights on that building, mm. uh, but it turns out it's a Miami police station. Ah, well, you, gotta let, you gotta let that go. <laughs> but we thought that would be a really interesting tourist attraction. Sure. No, it definitely could. Yeah. yeah. So now uh, you have your company here, the studio here. And you do more than just animation, right? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about all the things that you guys do over there? And maybe some of the projects that you're working on? Yeah. Um, well, uh, probably the probably the main project that we've been working on since we opened our doors is uh, Tesla. Not the automobile, but the mad scientist inventor, Nikola mm-hmm. Tesla. Uh, we're working on a TV series that will bring... Uh, uh, his genius and invention to the next generation of kids. Um, we've done a bunch of uh, different spec work for uh, uh, projects that are being pitched to the streamers at the moment. Probably can't mention those by name. Uh, and then also because I'm there, we, we still get approached occasionally to, about doing visual effects. Yeah, there's a cool movie that <laughs> you worked on that was shot here, um, Critical Thinking, a John Leguizamo movie. Yes, his directorial debut. He yeah. also starred in A Real Miami Story. Yeah. Now, that that hasn't been released yet. Is there anything that we can talk about on that? Hmm. Um, Mr. Martinez, you might know a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a Miami story. It's something that, you know, that we're and we'll probably have the producer Carla Berkowitz on as well, uh, who championed that story uh, since it happened. But yeah, really quickly in the late 90s, uh, inner city school in Miami, Miami Jackson High uh, became a true underdog winning the national championship in chess against some of the top Ivy League prep schools in the country, which was really like almost an impossible feat. Uh, for this ragtag group of kids from Miami to compete at that level. And they did. It's a true story. Uh, They were able to get John Leguizamo involved to not only make it his directorial debut, but he stars as as the teacher in the film as well. So it's uh, it's a really, really interesting project. They shot all over Miami. Uh, The organization, Hylia Park, was very involved in it as well. uh, I see you have on a Hylia Park hat. Yes, yeah. Our Hylia Park studios got involved uh, as associate producers of the film. Uh, So we're, we're very excited about this film and and then of course smartly uh you know knowing that dean is in our backyard at some point and you know you, you can talk more dean of how you got involved in the film yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to think originally what the what the uh involvement was um yeah so uh you know so critical thinking is going to be a great movie uh, it's really well done. It's not the first time that I've been visual effects supervisor for a first-time actor-director. I've mm. been called in a number of times for that. Um, it wasn't an effects-intensive movie. Probably the biggest concern was that it was a Circa movie. Uh, it's based in 19... Late 90s, yeah, around 97, 98. Yeah, yeah period pieces are always more right. difficult because... Right. And I do think I do think the first call was, why don't you come in because we think there's a police car in one of the shots, that kind of thing, right? 
and once I got there, they said, well, we, we did actually have a visual effects list for this movie, but when we looked at it compared to what our budget was, we got scared away. But now that you're here helping us, why don't we take a look at that list? So we actually went through and had a look at a bunch of the, the things they wanted to try to do. Um, and, uh, and I was on set for uh, those visual effects shots. Uh, in the end, we ended up with some other uh, bits and pieces, what we call fixes, uh, to help uh, enhance the movie or push the movie further along. Uh, and then we also, just on a whim, we played with end credit, with the opening credit. So we ended up doing an opening credit animation, which they never intended to do, but mm. it's, it was really a great exercise and fun to work with John on. Um, there's throughout, as you can imagine, throughout the movie, there's also quite a lot of subtitles, uh, things like defining the location or the match that they were in. Uh, there's timers on chess matches, so we got involved in doing a lot of those kind of things all throughout the film. That's pretty cool, exciting. And, you know, I can say now on movies and also on TV shows, sometimes the opening and ending credits are you know as exciting as the film itself so yeah and john cool. john Leguizamo is a great person i mean he's uh he's a really good character a really good spirit and i was really impressed with how well he could direct talent and how comfortable he made the young people on set mm. uh he really had them you know worked up to the right level to uh, to pr- put on an amazing performance. Uh, there's some experienced actors in the movie, but you can see the young talent certainly stands up to them as well, which is always a key sign of making a great movie. Uh, I watched uh, Latin American History for Morons about 12 times, uh, realizing that John was basically playing off of that character. Uh, as the as the high school instructor, um, but he also has his moment to mention Latin American history in the middle of critical thinking as well. Wow, which I thought was really quite uh, ironic and appropriate. Sure, good tie-in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great tie-in. Awesome. Well, this has been exciting. It has been. Yeah. Should, should we end with our little advice piece? Yeah, I mean, but before we get to the advice piece, you know what I that, what I do think is really cool is now with your company you're able to work in an environment that's the culmination of everything that you've done in your career you know and i certainly want to give a little drop to my friend manny over there um that you work closely with it's been uh you know really great to come in and talk to you guys about you know what you're doing moving forward so i don't know maybe we should put a link we to, should, yeah. To, we should yeah. put a link on the website. Anytime you know, so we have a new you guys you know, creative person, creative studio that's willing to operate here in Miami, in South Florida, in the neighborhood, I think it's always special. It's very unique. So Yeah, what are you guys, maybe 15 minutes away from us? <laughs> if that. <laughs> if that, yeah. <laughs> 15 minutes away walking. Yeah, we're, at, we're, at, we're <laughs> on one of those scooters. Yep, exactly. Yeah, so... So, yeah, we usually like to end with just sort of uh, an advice piece. So, you know, if you were speaking to a younger Dean Lyon or someone like yourself coming up in the industry today that wanted to follow a similar career path, what advice would you give them? (laughs) Well, what's interesting is that, of course, as we've talked about all throughout the discussion, is the the industry has changed dramatically. It's really not the same old Hollywood that it was when I broke in. 
but I, I do think that a lot of the key things that I share with, with young people uh, are you should surround yourself with like-minded people. Uh, filmmaking is a collaborative experience, so you should surround yourself with other filmmakers. Uh, an early piece of advice uh, I learned in Hollywood is when somebody says, what do you do? You tell them what it is you want to do, right? What do you do? I'm a film director. I'm not the bartender at the local bar. I'm a film director. That immediately tells that person that you're aiming for the stars. You're aiming for your ultimate dream of what you want to do. Uh, and it also doesn't hurt to have a f few films under your belt, even if they were just student projects or things you did with your friends that you hang out with. Um, and then the other thing is it's always about being in the right place at the right time. So you won't get that sitting at home on a video game. You get that by being out at networking events, film festivals, film premieres. That's where you meet the people that will help you push ahead in your career. Hmm. Well, that's great advice. That is great advice. That is some hot advice. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, we want to thank Dean Lyon for joining us today. This was a great interview. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to having this one published. We look forward to hearing more about your work in the future. So thank you, Dean. Thank you for bringing us some screen heat. Yes, sir. Okay, we're back in. Yes. That was great. Dean Lyon. The Dean of Admissions. He is a lion. He's a lion. What a career. I, that man is amazing. He's done such great work. It's just... Legend. Legendary, iconic stuff that just seared into your childhood, you know? <laughs> childhood? Just depending on when you grew up. Past, yeah. present, future? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, just recent stuff, too. But it's just so many things that going back now and, and re-watching it, knowing that he helped to create some of those images is just incredible. Yeah. And not only is he revolutionary in terms of VFX... Hmm. Inventor. Right. On the cusp. Inventing the actual, he worked on Da Vinci machines, creating all sorts of new technology to further the craft yeah. of visual effects, which is fascinating. Good guy, too. Yeah, great guy. Yeah, so that was exciting. I always say every time I talk to him, there's another nugget that comes out. Yeah, yeah. And more often than not, that nugget is gold. It is. And we're yeah, we're lucky to have him at least here for now in Miami. Uh, he's got his animation studio here. He's doing some stuff right here in town. Yeah. So. Mana Animation. Yeah. Yeah, we should put that on the website. Should totally put we a link. Did to say that. that we are going to put a link. To we'll that. put a link on the website. Link on the site. So yeah, speaking of craft, it was a, it was an interesting kind of just ties into what uh, some of what Dean was saying. Uh, IndieWire saying that Roger Deakins believes that cinematography and visual effects should not be separate crafts. Roger Deakins, one of the greatest cinematographers in cinema history. That's right. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He uh, recently won the Oscar, I believe it was for the new... Um, Blade Runner. Recently won the Oscar for Blade Runner 2049, which was visual masterpiece. It was. Yeah. It was visually delicious. Yes. But, you know, because so many of these great movies have so many visual effects elements to them, what he's saying is like, you know, I come in and I'm, uh, you know, a famous painter and I do a painting and then I have another famous painter that paints on top of me. <laughs> it's like, well, what happened to my painting? So That's one way to look at it. Yeah. He, uh, he likes it when he can collaborate with the visual effects supervisor and come in and just kind of at least give a, a guiding idea of color palette and what his intention was with certain scenes to make sure that's all not taken away. And, 
you know, vice versa, talking to Dean and him saying how important it, it was for him to also be on set during production and yeah. not just be relegated to a post position, but to actually be there interacting with the DP and the director and really understanding, you know, because not only does that make it easier in post-production, I think for him, it also helps him understand the creative vision and look and feel mm-hmm. that was intended. Yeah. And, you know, that was really great to hear that insight from Dean himself, especially when you consider, as Dean said, you know, so much of a film or a TV show is visual effects, even when people don't realize it. I mean, if you look at the end of I mean, we talked about that, the ending credits, you look at the ending credits and you see that one start for the VFX team and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. So that visual effects is 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 vitally important, especially now. Yeah, yeah. And Dean pointed out too, it's just teams of people. It's not just one human being behind a computer clicking away. It's really these are teams of individuals, sometimes spread out all over the world. Yeah. Working on one project. Yeah. And that's certainly, you know, a part of what my company does because, you know, we tie in animators and people from everywhere, really, mm-hmm. on a project to project basis. Yeah. And now, you know, what's really, really great about this moment is you can move files so fast you can really connect the dots as uh you know several years ago when you know the four or five of us in the office at the very least to get a, a certain thing done on a certain project now you know you can work remotely you can be almost anywhere and still have the machinery of the project cranking correct so yeah this day and age has really changed things dean was on the forefront of a lot of that happening Mm. so good guy great interview love it but there are more things happening yeah what's going on saw hustlers how was it it's good jennifer lopez j-lo i think that this is her best role really she killed it better than selena (sighs) that was a good one this is a mature Jennifer Lopez. Right, that was more of a breakout situation. Yeah. This is just J-Lo being J-Lo. All the chops are there. In the zone. She transcended J-Lo. Really? 100%. So it was a character role. Definitely became. Yes. Hmm. Absolutely. You have to check it out. I was really impressed. And not just by her. I mean, everyone came with it. Cardi B. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she really surprised me. I, mean, I could tell. She kind of understood that life. Style. Well, yeah, she did. <laughs> I, and I thought that that's what it was going to be. Right. But, you know, in some instances, and, you know, I don't know if I would expect this from Cardi B, but you know, some of her performance was sublime. Really? Yes. Oh, well, maybe a couple of Oscar nods coming our way. <laughs> I don't know if it was that sublime. You never know. <laughs> um, Lizzo. I got to give it up for her, too. Mm. But really, ultimately, you know, everyone really came with it. So I was I don't want to say I was surprised because, you know, I really did think that the movie was going to be good. Mm. But um, yeah. And the box office proves it. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And there has been Oscar buzz. It also premiered at Toronto. A lot of people talking uh, very positively about that picture. So yeah. see what happens. Unfortunately, There's other pictures, though. Yeah. The Goldfinch. Speaking of Roger Deakins, just shot another film called The Goldfinch, a Warner Brothers release in uh, association with Amazon Studios. About a $40 million budget uh, tanked. Opening weekend, wide release, 2,500 screens, $2.5 million. No bueno. No, no bueno. Wow. Yeah. So they're kind of going back thinking, well, maybe... This just 
was never intended to be a movie in the first place. <laughs> great book, not a great movie. Oh, yeah, another film that was at Toronto but got poor. I think got like a D minus, D plus from a couple of not people did not respond to it critically. <laughs> D minus, D plus. <laughs> when you're at that level, <laughs> trying to think in high school if I ever got a D minus, if I was equally as disappointed or if I was a little well, it was almost a C minus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that. I don't think that that measure works I thought it was very on the well. curve. It was graded on the curve. <laughs> there was no yeah. curve. So yeah, uh, that one didn't do well for for the Warner Brothers and Amazon family, unfortunately. But you never know. You know, it's a hit and miss game. You never know it's going to work sometimes. Yeah, and they had a lot of big people on that cast. That's yeah, big cast. You know, great directors. Obviously, the technical team was first class. But then again. It's a tough biz. Yeah, but uh, yeah. What else? Is, what else did you see? Yeah. So I saw it. How was it? It was it. That's it. <laughs> That's it. We got it puns. <laughs> they had a lot of it puns in that movie too. Just I show. tell you, every three minutes, it, 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 and they weren't talking about it. They were just talking about it. It was just it. Yeah, but it was a long movie. Yeah. Three hours. Oof. That's long. Horror movie, three hours. Yeah. Yeah, you could feel that three hours. You felt the time, huh? I did. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that's true. When I'm watching a movie, especially in the theater, the first time I look at my watch, I realize, okay, that's how long the movie should have been. Yeah, there the is movie, that saying, though. You know, if the movie's still going and I've just looked at my watch, <laughs> that's what you should have cut out. Yeah, unless you have to go and get the babies. Yeah, so whenever the, the studio's advice, if you're doing the test screenings, the minute you see more than three or four people looking at their watch at the same time, that's what the director needs to cut out. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're under an hour, you're in trouble. Yeah, but I do have to say that the VFX team on it, mm. they knocked it out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. The visual effects, phenomenal. That's great. Yeah. The visual effects, I think, you know, it even surpassed the first movie. The first movie, you know, there was a certain magic and it had a balance, a certain balance that, you know, really gave it a certain feel, a certain dynamic. And I think the length in conjunction with, uh, you know, overreach hmm. may have played a factor, but it had the box office. Yeah, it's definitely another Warner Brothers picture that actually is doing very well at the box office. So it balances out. Everything balances. That's what you hope, at least. Right. Unless you try. If you're one of those creative execs, you're like, hope this one works out. <laughs> but I mentioned it last last uh, podcast. Yeah. The Scars Guards. That's right. We were talking about the Scars Guards. Yes. Scars Guards. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I really do like this performance. Hmm. You know, right. I think that uh, Junior Scars Guard. Cheers to the Scars Guards. Yes. Yes. He really did come with it. So. Fantastic. There you go. That was exciting. Yes. All right. So. I'm going to get back into another show that I keep talking about. Succession. Succession. It's crazy. This episode was just bananas. Oh, yeah? And this episode was actually about the media wars. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Two big media giants. Looks like they're going to merge. And politics just comes in the way. Yeah. Didn't happen. 
I love it. You got to see that show, man. I know. I got to get into that. Can't wait till next week. Oh, man. We'll get it. We'll get into it. I'll catch up. Yeah. I'll figure it out. Have some bitch time. But we should talk about the Emmys, though. The Emmys. Yes. What do we got going on with the Emmys? A lot of announcements. A lot of announcements. Who are the big winners, Kevin? Well, you know, on our first episode, and you listeners, go back and listen to our first episode with Adrian Wooten, because we talk about Game of Thrones, and Game of Thrones cleaned up. God still got it. Still got it. I mean, they're gone. But they still got it. <laughs> yeah, and you know they're coming back. Yeah, and I don't think anyone prequel at HBO is going to be cleaning that vault out anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, they they're not going to be taping over the long night. Triple, quadruple, quintuple. That's right. Copies. Um, Chernobyl. A new show from HBO again. Wow. Just lighten it up, literally. <laughs> and the puns keep going. Chernobyl actually was an amazing show. Mm. You know who told me to watch that show? Karen Hall. From right. our second episode. It's one of her favorite. That and Sopranos. It's like yeah. all she talks about. Yeah. Sopranos, they have that backstock too. So, but Chernobyl really did, you know, clean up and then we'll clean up. Yeah. they yeah. Hopefully that's all cleaned up over there. Sure. But um, well deserved. Oh, yeah. Agreed. And one well of my deserved. favorite comedies that I'm really big into won a bunch of stuff The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah. Has one, including uh, guest star Luke Kirby, who plays uh, a young Lenny Bruce. Great, great performance. Yeah. If you're a fan of that old school, talk about pushing boundaries. Good old Lenny. Yeah. Yeah, that's a guy who will push it. He'd yeah. be in trouble in these times. And 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 in those times, it wasn't about just getting shunned on Twitter. The cops would literally show up to the club and take you to jail <laughs> for the weekend. Yeah. It was just part of the game. You know, in that show, they shot uh, an episode here or part of one episode here in they, Miami. That's right. Yeah. Season three, which is coming out now in December. And uh, I remember the big trip last season, uh, season two, was Paris. And this year, they decided to take a trip to Miami. Yeah. So Shot at Faena. They did, yeah. Fontainebleau on the beach. And uh, Faena as well. So, yeah. It's going to be really cool to see that show's third season and see how that that show and those characters evolve. Yeah. I got to give it up. When they see us already winning. When they see us. They got a win. They got a couple of wins, actually. Yes. And then another one of my favorite shows, Fleabag. Ooh, yeah. Shot in the UK. Mm. I bet they're not erasing over that. No. <laughs> Nothing gets erased. I think that's the problem with social media now. Like people say, once you put something out there, it's out there forever. Yeah. So not not as big of a deal anymore. Well, you know, just imagine the years before... And you know, it's almost hard to think about a world before the whole social media thing. A world of analog. The analog. I mean, the world before the iPhone. Yeah, and if you think about the iPhone's what, 10 years old? 11 10, years 11 old? 11 years old, That's, yeah. Uh, not a long time. Mm-hmm. I remember life before 2008. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just revolutionized everything. Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah, it's just a whole different ballgame now, but it's exciting to be here. Yes, it is. On on the podcasting, on the screen heating, and looking forward to our next episode as well. Yes. Our next episode is about where it all starts. Yes. The writing. The writing. Yes. We have another very talented writer, Mr. Ethan Banville. 
will be our next special guest interviewed by Kevin Sharpley at the last Miami Media and Film Market. Loved this interview. Yeah, I can't wait to hear it. Ethan has been uh, 20 years in the industry. Yeah. And has worked on some of the biggest shows. Totally. Been on Nickelodeon, been in a bunch of the networks. iCarly. iCarly, yeah. Drake and Josh. Those are the big ones. Yeah, so it's going to be exciting to delve into that world again. You know, we had the lovely and talented Karen Hall, and then going back into to the world of writing what now with Ethan is going to be fun. It was a fun interview. Yeah. We talked about skateboarding. Love it. Nothing like <laughs> California skateboarding. Volkswagen Beagle. Volkswagen Beetle. Talk about the t- Vol- Volkswagen Beetle. There you go. VW Bug. No, that's the... Yeah, it's a bug. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. easier to say than Beetle. Taking it back. Moving forward. I think that they actually just had an anniversary, 25 years. That's right. The Beetle and skateboarding were both around before the iPhone. So... <laughs> yes. There's that. We're going back analog That's for right. next episode. We're going way back. So I hope you'll join us. Until then, we hope you keep it hot with Screen Heat Miami. I'm yes. JL Martinez. Kevin Sharpley. We'll see you in the next one. Boom.